Hello, everyone, and welcome to Grace. We're so glad you're with us today. This coming Tuesday, October 31st, is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. A German monk named Martin Luther dared to challenge the established church's practice of selling forgiveness. I believe that when he started, he had no idea that his action would spark a reformation that would change not only the church, but would change the world as we know it. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. Now, in getting started, I want you to think about what life was like in the Middle Ages. Um, Most children didn't survive into adulthood. 30 years was considered a long life. Plague was a constant fear and concern. Uh, Most of the people, over 90% of them, were illiterate peasants, extremely poor, just eking out a living on the land. They worked the land, hoping just to survive the winter, and life was drudgery. It was like a dreary preparation for heaven. And so, as you can imagine, the church gave these people tremendous hope for a better life after death. But it's important we understand that if you were to ask the average professing Christian in Europe in that time, how are you going to get to heaven? They would have undoubtedly mentioned Jesus' death for them at the cross, but even more important in their mind was that you have to be worthy of this. You've got to earn it. You've got to do good deeds so that hopefully at the end of life, your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. That was the understanding in the minds of virtually everyone. Salvation as a free gift of God's grace was virtually unknown and unthought of. But all of that was to change in one turbulent generation. In fact, there were a lot of changes going on in the 14 and 1500s. Now, if you're a student of history, you know that the 1400s, 1500s, right around that time, is what is often referred to as the Renaissance period. When so many changes were taking place and science was taking a huge step forward, I want you to think of a few of the things that were going on. In 1519, Magellan attempted to sail around the world, and although he himself didn't make it, some members of his crew did. You know what happened in 1492, right? Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered the Americas, and that opened up a whole new set of possibilities and thinking for people as they imagined what this might mean. Machiavelli was shaping the understanding of politics. Michelangelo, in this same period of time, was chipping away at his masterpieces. But there was one invention that I believe changed the world more than any other, and that was in around 1440 when Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press with movable type, and suddenly people who would have never dreamed of having a book could now actually own a book or a pamphlet. It was amazing the difference that it made. It was into this kind of world 
that Martin Luther was born in 1483 in this house, actually, in Eisleben. You can go there on a tour today and visit the house. He was born into a fairly prosperous family. Hans Luther, his dad, was in the uh, mining business, the copper mining business, to be exact. And he could afford to send his bright young son to schools in Madgefeld, Mons Monsfeld, Madgeburg, and here in Eisenach, this beautiful area. Isn't that gorgeous? This is where Luther, as a young man, developed a real love for learning, particularly for music and a love for the Bible. He was a very bright student. His friends nicknamed him the philosopher. He also had nicknames like the King of Hops because of his love of beer. He loved to drink beer, all right? But Luther did not become a lawyer like his dad wanted him to. You see, he had an obsession of how to get rid of his guilt. He had an obsession in his life of finding salvation. Once in 1505, when he was 22 years old, after a trip home visiting his family, on his way back to school, a thunderstorm broke upon he and a companion, and the thunder boomed, and the lightning began to strike, and suddenly, as they crested a hill, a lightning bolt struck, instantly killing his companion, knocking Luther off of his horse. And he raised a muddy face toward heaven, and he called on St. Anna for salvation. She, by the way, was the patron saint of miners. Remember, his dad was in the mining business. And so he looked toward heaven and said, Saint Anna, help, and I will become a monk. And with those words wrenched from his petrified lips, Martin Luther entered a monastery in a city called Erfurt. Again, all these places you can visit today if you go on a tour to Lutherland. This monastery was known for its discipline and its scholarship. And Luther figured here and perhaps only here could he find salvation for his soul. Now remember, in his understanding, he had to be pure enough, worthy enough to earn that salvation. And so he set about trying to do that. He spent hours, up to six hours at a time, in the confessional until he wore his confessor, Staupitz, completely out. But then he would leave the confessional after hours of thinking of all these sins, even the littlest peccadilloes, and he would remember something else, a thought or an omission, something he had left undone, and his despair would return. And so he redoubled his efforts because he had to be good enough. He practiced self-flagellation. Fairly common among monks in that day, he took a whip, and with his own hand, he whipped himself on the back until it ripped his flesh and the blood poured. His fellow monks would find him unconscious in a bloody pool some mornings. He later said, if ever a monk could have gotten to heaven by monkery, it would have been I. He was excellent at the austere, disciplined life. Once he fasted for six weeks in a row without eating any food and only sleeping every three to four days out of absolute necessity. He would also go out in the snow in the wintertime naked 
trying to make himself pure enough, spend the whole night out, trying to make himself pure enough to go and be with God in heaven. But this peace he so longed for eluded him. At least he was a good student. He studied the original language, Hebrew languages, Hebrew and Greek, so that he could read the Bible in the original languages. And at the age of 23, he was ordained a priest. And by the way, I think we have a picture perhaps somewhere, maybe not, of uh, where he performed his first mass, officiated his first mass. But something crucial happened in 1510 as he was continuing to be a, a student and a professor and read his Bible more and more. He got an assignment from his monastery to go to Rome. And he hiked there through the Alps in a very severe winter. It was 700 miles away. He was excited about going to Rome. He particularly wanted to see the Vatican. And so when he came in sight of Rome, he fell to his knees and said, Hail, holy city of Rome. He was so eager to go and see some of the relics and venerate the relics that he had heard about and see all the different sites. But when he got to Rome, he saw that it was anything but a holy city. It was more like a den of iniquity. The drunkenness, the immorality, the profligacy. Church offices were sold for money. Religion had become big business and it turned Luther off. It shocked him. But still he ran from one relic to another trying to obtain favor until he finally came to the Scala Sancta. These sacred stairs where today you can go and see the pious pilgrims as they ascend these stairs on their knees. And that's what he started to do. And his reward, his pilgrim's reward, as he went up each step, he would kiss the step and say the Lord's Prayer because he had been promised that it would take nine years. Each step would take nine years off of his sentence in purgatory. But as he ascended those stairs, been brought there by Constantine's mother centuries before, the very stairs on which Jesus Christ had supposedly been condemned by Pilate, there was something that was thundering in his mind. You see, as he'd studied the book of Romans, he was confused. He saw particularly a couple of verses there that he just couldn't understand. One of them was Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He couldn't understand that. And then the other verse was Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Luther looked at these verses and says, how can that possibly be? You have to earn salvation. You have to be good enough. You have to work for it. How can anyone possibly be saved by grace through faith? Just didn't make sense. But as he ascended those stairs... These verses kept echoing in his mind, the righteous will live by faith, the righteous will live by faith. And suddenly the lightning struck again. And the veil that had kept Luther spiritually blinded 
was torn asunder and he saw. He realized that he had been laboring to accomplish what Jesus had already accomplished for him at the cross. He was working to try to get the forgiveness that had already been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ on a blood-stained cross. And it dawned on him that he needed to place faith in Jesus and trust him and him alone for salvation. He said, I felt myself to have been born again. Now, boy, when he returned back home, it was a bombshell. Who ever heard of a born-again priest? I mean, this was weird to the people in that day. And yet, as he preached in this particular pulpit here in Wittenberg, His understanding of grace, straight out of the Bible, began to spice his sermons. People had never seen or heard anything like it, and so they came from near and far to hear Martin Luther preach, and the church was usually, usually packed. Well, about this time, the Pope kicked off a capital campaign. You see, St. Peter's Church in Rome, a thousand years old, had been condemned, it was in such disrepair, and a glorious new St. Peter's building was planned, but Germans would need to foot much of the bill, and so to pay for it, the church was gonna sell church offices. One young prince bought a bishopric for 10,000 ducats. If you had the money, you could do that, but primarily the money would be raised by the selling of indulgences. You say, Pastor Rex, what in the world is an indulgence? I want you to think of it like a spiritual coupon. It's like this thing you buy. It's a paper, generally, and it means that you can have certain sins remitted and forgiven, past, present, or future. And so people would buy these in order, again, to cut years off of their time in purgatory because the popular understanding was your good deeds have to outweigh your bad and most people figured they'd fall short and so at the end of life, God would need to purge away these sins and that process is called purgatory. Think of it as thousands of years of misery. And so, a man named John Tetzel arrived in Wittenberg. He was a super sales monk. He was the top seller of indulgences in the whole kingdom. Amazingly persuasive and charismatic. And he came with a whole team with trumpets and banners and fanfare. They brought a huge metal chest and plunked it down right at the altar in the great cathedral in Wittenberg. And then they laid out the papal bull that had been signed by the Pope, promising not a partial, mind you, but a plenary now, a full plenary indulgence, forgiveness of all of your sins to anyone who gave to this project. And so the people lined up to give as Tetzel's men sang this little ditty. As soon as the coin and the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. And so they lined up with their gold and silver coins in order to give. Now, it gets even better. Not only can you buy indulgences for yourself, but aha, you can buy them for your deceased relatives. Now, think of the emotional pressure of this. 
You've never read a Bible in your life. 97% of the people are illiterate anyway. They couldn't read a Bible if they had one in their own language. And the only authorities you know are telling you, listen, even now, your deceased husband or wife, your dear son or daughter who died, your mom or dad, your dear old aunt or grandmother are right now languishing in the flames of purgatory, a torture worse than anything devised by any human on earth. And even now, they can see you who have the means, mind you, to release them from this agony. How could you possibly be so hard-hearted as to withhold your gift? So a virtual torrent of money began to pour in. You say, how could that ever evolve to that? Well, remember, the teaching was we can be saved through our efforts and money is a form of congealed effort. If you worked hard for this money, that money represents effort. And so it was only a matter of time if we can be saved by our efforts that someone surmised, well, can't we then be saved by our money? And so the money poured in. And when Luther heard and saw what was happening, he was appalled. Now remember, he had experienced salvation as the free gift of God. And he knew that forgiveness could not be bought with silver or gold. It had already been paid for with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It could not be bought like a sack of potatoes, as he said. So he said, by the grace of God, I'm going to put a hole in his trunk. Now that night, Frederick the Wise, the elector of Saxony and Lutheran, Luther's sovereign, had a strange dream. In his dream, Frederick saw an obscure monk who came and wrote words of fire on a church door. And it's funny how dreams are. In the dream, the quill with which he wrote had a long feather on it that reached all the way to Rome and knocked the tiara off the Pope's head. <laughs> and all the princes of Europe came rushing to try to hold that tiara in place. And when he awakened from that troubling dream, he was so bothered. He said he wished there were some Daniel or Joseph who could interpret that dream for him. That morning was October 31st, 1517, exactly 500 years ago as of this coming Tuesday. What Frederick the Wise did not know is that a relatively obscure monk named Martin had devised a bold plan. Without conferring with any of his friends, at high noon, he left his home and walked across that little village town in Wittenberg with hammer in hand and a large scroll of paper upon which were written 95 theses. And he tacked that to the church door in Wittenberg. This is a replica. The original door was burned, but this is a replica of that original door there at the cathedral. These theses were propositions, 95 points he wanted to debate and discuss with philosophers and, and theologians, anyone who would be willing. He called them to debate on the next day, November 1st, All Saints Day, because he knew there would be a festival and there would be lots of theologians in town. No one took him up on the debate. But within a month, because of the marvels of the printing press, Luther's ideas 
had been disseminated all over Europe. The sale of indulgences plummeted. In fact, John Tetzel, the super salesman, had to go into hiding from angry German mobs. Remember the ditty? As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, another soul from Purgatory Springs. They changed that ditty. The people in Germany changed it to sound like this. When the coin rings in the pitcher, the Pope becomes richer. And so they were having a little fun with this. But the more Luther read the Bible, the more trouble he had reconciling salvation by grace through faith with the church's salvation through rituals and good works. And from 1517 and the months and years that followed, he continued to preach and teach until finally in 1521, the Pope had had enough of this monk. And Martin Luther was excommunicated from the church and commanded to appear at an imperial diet in Worms, the beautiful, beautiful city in southern Germany, right on the Rhine River. Because it was there that there was going to be a huge gathering of people of importance. All the papal legates would be there from Rome. The bishops and archbishops and cardinals, the barons and the knights and the dukes, they would all be there. The theologians and philosophers would gather, yes, to handle matters of state, but in the back of everyone's mind was, what's going to be the outcome of this troublesome monk from Wittenberg? And at that gathering also was Charles V, the new Spanish monarch, newly newly come to the throne, 21 years old, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He would be there too. Martin's friends told him, don't go. You'll never return from Worms alive. And they said, remember John Huss? John Huss was the Bohemian priest from Prague that a hundred years earlier had said many of the same things that Martin Luther was saying now. And John Huss had been invited to a meeting as well. It's called the Council of Constance, and he was given a safe conduct pass. No one will harm you. We just want to come together and listen to your views and understand you better. But when he arrived at the Council of Con Constance, John Huss's safe conduct pass was repudiated, and he was condemned peremptorily, taken out, and burned at the stake alive. Remember Huss. Remember Huss. Martin, you'll never come back from Worms alive. And Luther said, though the devils be as thick as the tiles on the rooftops, I go to Worms. And so, in a humble two-wheeled cart, he set out on the journey. Pamphlets of that day showed him with a halo on his head and a dove at his shoulder, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. He was a hero to the German people already. You might say he was the first sort of Christian superstar, if you will. Everywhere he went, people thronged to see him. At one town, 60 horsemen came out and escorted him to the church building where it was so packed with people that the balcony groaned from the weight. He was like a, a liberator. He was like a second Paul, a new Moses. 
And so when he arrived at Worms, thousands went out to greet him. And the stage was now set for this unbelievable showdown, one of the most courageous stands probably that anyone was ever going to make for several thousand years. When the day came, he was led into a great hall out in the center of the room where there was a table stacked with his trouble-causing pamphlets and books. And there, John Eck, the prosecutor, was to examine him. And Eck said, are these your books? Luther quickly examined them and said, yes, they are. Second question, will you recant? Luther's knees almost buckled. He had expected a discussion, a debate perhaps, but it seemed as Eck went on and on that the summary of his argument was, Martin Luther, who are you to go against 1,500 years of church tradition? Who do you think you are? And that seemed to be the feeling in the great room that day among most gathered there. Will you recant? Picture of Huss flaming at the stake came before his mind. And he figured that perhaps my friends were right. Maybe it was a mistake to even appear here. He said, because your majesty, this is a matter of the gravest importance upon which rests the eternal salvation of the human soul. I request some time to consider my answer. The people booed and hissed but when the translation was made to Charles V, he said that out of his clemency, he would grant him 24 hours to consider it and no more. Luther was let out. Aleander, the papal legate who had come to report on this, wrote back to Rome that night and said, he came in like a lion, but he went out as dejected as a fool. What Aleander did not know is that back at his quarters, Luther was strengthening himself, strengthening himself with prayer. He spent several hours that night in the Bible seeking encouragement and strength from God. And finally, he prayed this prayer, Lord, this is your fight. This is your struggle. Oh God, help me. The next day at dusk, when the torches and the lamps were once again lighted, Luther was led again to the center of that great hall. And Eck began, are you now ready to recant? And Luther kind of changed the direction a little. He said, well, my books deal with matters of piety upon which all sides agree. How can I recant of these? Eck was growing impatient with him. He said, give us an answer without horns. Luther said, all right then, I'll give you an answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am refuted and convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture or clear reasoning, since I can believe neither pope nor councils, since it is obvious that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I cannot and I will not recant anything. Pandemonium broke loose. The people stomped their feet and hissed and booed. Eck cried, you cannot prove it. He said, I will prove it if you'll give me a chance to speak. Once again, Eck said, will you recant? 
And Martin Luther then said those words that have etched themselves on people's minds for the last 500 years. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That was a watershed moment in history. Yes, Luther was condemned as a heretic and given 21 days to recant or else be burned alive. But the day had been won for the gospel. And unlike John Hus, who had no one to protect him, Luther had Frederick the Wise, a powerful leader, who kidnapped him and hid him away in the Wartburg Castle. Now, we could spend hours, I suppose, talking about the life and legacy of Martin Luther. But I want to mention just a few of the things that he did that are most, I believe, significant. One, while at the Wartburg Castle, he translated the Bible into the German language. First time it had ever been done. And when the people of Germany read the Bible for the first time, and saw no mention of indulgences, no mention of purgatory, no mention even of a pope. It just fueled the fires of reform even more. Two great teachings came out of the Reformation. There were many, but two that are critical. One, salvation is a gift of God that is received by grace through faith. It cannot be earned or deserved. And second, the Bible is our source of authority. The 66 books, Old and New Testament. And while we can learn things through church, experience, through church tradition and the experience we have with the Lord, this is our real authority, the word of God. I think another significant outcome was that Luther took the seven sacraments of the church, and here they are, baptism, penance, confirmation, holy communion, the anointing of the sick, sometimes known as extreme unction, marriage, and ordination of holy orders. He took these seven sacraments and reduced it to just the two that Jesus himself had commanded, which, of course, are baptism and Holy Communion, or what we often call the Lord's Supper, okay? So those became the two sacraments in this new Reformation Lutheran movement that was, was going on. Luther leveled the playing field through his teaching, a biblical teaching, mind you, of the priesthood of all believers, he said, look, whether it's the farmer out in the field or the teacher in front of the classroom, we all can come to the Bible, God's word, and understand how to be saved. We can see what the essentials of the gospel really, really are. And we don't need some ecclesiastical magisterium to tell us how to be saved. It's right there. It's right there in Scripture. And he taught that church leaders are not to be pompous tyrants, but humble servants. They're to serve the people humbly and teach the word of God. And by the way, pastors can marry. 
There's nothing in the Bible that says they can't. I mean, after all, Peter clearly, Scripture says, has a, had a wife who used to accompany him as he went on his apostolic journeys here and there. Peter had a wife. He was married. And so Luther married a woman named Catherine von Bora. There she is. Catherine was a strong woman, a former nun, and they had six children together and raised four orphans and by all accounts had a marvelous, marvelous marriage. One of my favorite quotes from Luther is this. He said, marriage is a better school for character than any monastery because it's in marriage that you get your corners rubbed off. Anybody want to say amen to that? Yeah. Incredible. Changed the whole way people thought about marriage and sex and family life. It was now seen as a good gift from God. Around the Luther's table, there was a lot of talk. I think we have a picture here of Luther around the table with some of his fellow reformers. And each evening in their home, a large sprawling home, it had been a rundown kind of building when they had first come there. And uh, as they had this meal together, there were usually a number of students, and they hung on Luther's every word. And after they had had some of Katie's wonderful home-brewed beer, okay, they would sit around and apply their Christianity to everyday life and issues, and so these students would take copious notes and write down a lot of the things that Luther said. And they were all put together in an anthology, 6,000 entries, and it's called Table Talk. If you want to kind of see Luther, I think, at his best, read Table Talk. Everything from silly to extremely serious to some pretty profound teaching on the Trinity and many, many other things are in table talk. So what is the outcome of all of this? Today, there are over 900 million Protestant Christians. And I'm really happy, really thrilled to say that relationships between Catholics and Protestants are much better than they were back then. I have many, many dear friends, both priest and laity in the Catholic Church, that I cherish those friendships. And my friends that are Catholics are quick to point out to me that many of the reforms that Luther was calling for actually happened later, and that is true. Although we obviously recognize that there are still significant theological differences in our beliefs about what it really means to follow Christ and experience his salvation. But I cherish those friendships. Luther had a lot of spiritual warfare in his life. And you can imagine why that would be, because so many important things were happening here. I think that the devil just turned out an all-out barrage on Luther. And he experienced a lot of depression and once in one of his deepest depressions, he wrote a hymn that's one of the church's greatest hymns, A Mighty Fortress. And the message is that 
Neither the devil nor all of the evil of the world can stand up against God. He is our mighty fortress. Luther died in 1546 in the same house in which he was born in Eisleben. And there was a huge funeral procession all the way as his body was taken to the castle church in Wittenberg where he was ultimately laid to rest And pilgrims still come there today and bring flowers and pay their respects. And we sit here today in the capital region of New York and we can hear the gospel largely because of that courageous stand he took 500 years ago. But as we wrap up today, i got a question for you. Remember that what drove Luther was how can I find salvation? How can I be made right? How can I be worthy to go and be with a holy God in heaven? And Luther found it. He found the answer. My question to you is, have you found it? Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of trusting in yourself, your own good works to save you? Aren't you weary of trying to be worthy enough to be with God? Look to Jesus and his blood-stained cross because it is there and there alone that you will find peace with God. Father, thank you for a man named Martin who dared to take a stand on your word. May we have his strength, his courage, his boldness. May we represent you today, Lord, in your gospel so well by your grace that people would be drawn to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for all that we have learned through these years. And I pray that your cause and your kingdom right here in this capital district would go forth in such a healthy and flourishing way that thousands and thousands of people who right now are desperately seeking for peace with God would find it just like Luther did. And may they find it trusting not in themselves but trusting in what you've already done for them at the cross and the empty tomb. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.